it took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest of the, to the least, put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and com gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend to it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh? in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. Crystal was feeling Jonah's lines there. I could hear it. That's good. Well, how are you doing this morning? It's good to hear God's word today together, and today we are finishing our uh, short study of the Old Testament book of Jonah. We've been studying that for the last couple of weeks. Uh, next week, we're going to start a new series as we begin the Advent season, so that'll be four weeks of remembering the first arrival of Jesus in his birth, that's the celebration of Christmas as well as remembering his promise that he's going to come again. And so I don't know about you, but in our household, the Christmas tree went up yesterday. So we're ready. We're ready. Uh, I don't know if you are. Uh, but for this moment here today, let's first pause and finish up Jonah one more time. Let's pray together. Jesus, we ask that you would come and that you would speak words of truth and grace 
to our hearts, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, remove all resistances. And Lord, we got a lot of them. We do. And we pray that you would remove any distractions of mind and heart, but that without us feeling like we need to check our real junk at the door either. Because God, we bring to you our many burdens, many people here today with heartache, burdens that are too great to carry, burdens of sin, of emotional baggage, of broken relationships, of a broken world. And so we are running to you because whom else we've got to turn to but you. You're the one that has words of life, so speak words of life. We're here to listen, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You ever wish you got a do-over? You ever wish you got a do-over? You know, a second chance to do something or say something all over again because you screwed it up the first time. Well, yesterday, uh, my wife once again asked me to hang something up on the walls, which might sound like an innocent and easy enough request, but you got to understand, whenever she asks me to do that, I tense up a little bit because it just seems every time I put up something on the wall, might be a curtain rod or a large picture frame, once I'm done and I step back from my work, I always seem to discover that it's just a little bit crooked, just a little bit too low, always a little bit off. And you can't fix it at that point, right? The nails are in the walls, the screws are fixed. And of course, my dear wife, she says it's endearing. I'm pretty sure she's mocking me. You know, what's it for you? You wish you had a do-over for something today. Jonah got a do-over right? That's why in chapter 3, verse 1 at the top, it says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. This time, Jonah, the prophet of Israel from the 8th century BC, he did as he was told, but the first time, Jonah ran away. We looked at this over the last couple of weeks. Jonah received a word from the Lord to speak to Nineveh, to bring them grace and truth, and immediately he jumped onto a ship sailing in the opposite direction, the opposite direction from Nineveh. But the story goes, guess who chased after him? God did, in his relentless love, in the same way that he chases after you and me in his relentless love, and he did this in a storm. Jonah, he almost drowned in that storm, but God rescued him by sending a big fish to swallow him whole. And look, those three days and three nights that Jonah was in the belly of that fish, it wasn't comfortable. But you know, you don't complain about your ride when you know you shouldn't be alive, do you? So, Jonah's heart was changed by God's rescuing grace. The fish spit him onto dry land, and so then God says, let's try this one more time. And this time, we're told in verse 3, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh at last. Now, you might think at that point, then the story is just over, but the story's not over. 
there's still plenty of drama left to be played out in these two chapters. In fact, pretty soon, it's pretty clear that Jonah is in need of a do-over of his do-over. You ever feel like that? Because we're weak, like Jonah is. Because we're strangers to the strange love of God and the gospel, like Jonah was. This is what we find in this story. We've got three things in the story we're going to look at. First, a repentant city. And secondly, an angry prophet. And thirdly, we're going to see a compassionate God. First, a repentant city. Second, an angry prophet. And third, a compassionate God. Let's take a look. First, a repentant city. We're told in verse 4 that Jonah preached a simple message to Nineveh. Real simple. Forty more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. It's a word of judgment. And understand, you got to understand, Jonah probably spoke more than just these eight words as he walked around that town that day. This is just a quick summary that we've been given. But his main point is pretty clear. He's calling the people of Nineveh to turn from their sins and to turn back to God. He's calling them to repent. Now that's a funky word, repent, right? The only time the average person in D.C. hears or sees the word repent is on a street corner or maybe on the National Mall when someone's warning you about the end of the world. But what does that word really mean? What is true repentance according to the Bible? Well, this story teaches us a few things. First, repentance, true repentance, grieves. True repentance grieves. True repentance feels deep, heartfelt sorrow for our moral failures, especially our failures to love well. Verse 5 tells us the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. And we're told then in verse 6 that even the king himself took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. And those were simply ancient cultural ways to publicly demonstrate your distress and your inward sadness in an outward sort of a way. True repentance grieves. You know, the old Westminster Confession of Faith from the 17th century describes true repentance as having, quote, grief and hatred of your sins and having a clear sense of the filthiness and the odiousness of your sins. What that means then is that repentance, according to the Bible, it, it's not just intellectual assent, is it? it it's not just simply acknowledging the fact that I have done wrong or just objectively being able to recite what you have done. It's got to hit you in the heart. Dear Christians, when was the last time that you were disgusted by your lovelessness, by your selfishness, by your sin? When was the last time that maybe you, you were doubled over, face down on the ground, because you were confronted with the reality 
of your sinfulness? And if the answer is never, then you really need to check and see if you've truly encountered Christ in the gospel. Because true repentance grieves from the heart, grieves over your sins. But we also learn here that true repentance hopes. It doesn't just grieve, it also hopes. And what do I mean? Notice how the Ninevite king here appeals to his people in verse 9. Who knows, he says, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. You see, apparently the Ninevites had learned enough about God's character to know that he's willing to forgive them. He just might do it. They had heard from Jonah about God's compassion. Have you? Because, see, you will never be upfront with God about your sin unless you know that he has been upfront with you about his love. As the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 2, it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. You see, because if it's only judgment and punishment that's coming your way, it's not safe to dare to be honest, is it? Why would you do that? Except if you have an offer of mercy extended before you. It's kindness that most leads us to repentance. True repentance is not just seeing your sin for what it really is. It's also seeing your Savior for who he really is. A Savior of mercy. A Savior of compassion and forgiveness. True repentance hopes. True repentance also turns. It grieves, it hopes, it also turns. In verse 8, the king also says, Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. And verse 10 tells us that God saw how they turned from their evil ways. See, true repentance isn't just feeling badly about your mistakes. True repentance rather makes you eager, by God's grace makes you eager to turn away from your selfish ways of living. To turn away from your sin, from your violent ways perhaps, or maybe your violent thoughts, or maybe your violent words, or maybe your indifference to violence all around you. The self-centeredness that infects all of our hearts. True repentance abandons our sins and sinful patterns and turns to God. And so it's worth asking, do you, friends, as part of your grief over sin, do you actually go to that next phase of humbly resolving to grow and to change? Uh, looking forward to new ways in which the grace of God might help you to say no to unrighteousness and yes to a life of love like Jesus's. True repentance pleads with God that he would give you strength to obey God differently next time. Have you not just grieved and not just hoped, but have you also turned from your sin and selfishness? And fourthly, what we also find in this passage is that true repentance spreads. 
not only grieves, it not only hopes and turns, true repentance spreads. Jonah's preaching, you know, results in mass repentance across the entire city of Nineveh. From the greatest to the least, we're told in verse 5, must have been a sight to see. Repentance is contagious. I don't know about you, but I've seen this in my personal conflicts, especially the ones that I've most caused. Right? When, when one person apologizes, oftentimes the other person soon follows. Repentance is contagious. We see this in communities. Because we all quietly long to be set free from our pretending, don't we? We want to come clean to each other, don't we? We want to be set free from our self-atoning, the exhaustion of trying to just improve yourself and better yourself and give yourself a moral makeover. It isn't always easy to repent, but we all long to live in a place of forgiveness, a place where it's safe to be your true flawed self. Deeply sinful, but deeply loved by God and by those, therefore, around you. Repentance is contagious. Communities can create cultures of repentance. A place of honesty. A place of truth and healing. I mean, really, it's worth imagining what would it be like for repentance to just spread across our entire church community. Person by person, just, just denuding themselves of lies that I'm doing okay, that I'm better than you, that I'm making it morally, professionally, relationally. Together to come naked before God and to be clothed in his unimaginable grace. What would it be like for repentance to spread across our church? What would it be like for us to pray for repentance citywide? This was the case in Nineveh many years ago. Repentance citywide, even nationwide turning from our violence and our evil and our indifference towards God. Repentance grieves, it hopes, it turns, it spreads. But most of all, this passage teaches us this, that true repentance moves. It moves the heart of God. The great climax of this chapter, chapter 3, is found in verse 10. It reads this, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented. He didn't judge them. He did not bring destruction upon them as they justly deserved and as he had threatened. I mean, it's a, it's, it, it, it's a, a thought worth pondering for a moment. Our repentance, our humbling of ourselves before the truth of our moral failures 
our, our humbling ourselves before God and before one another, our, our deep heartfelt grief over our sin, our hope in the mercy of Christ and the kindness of God, our zeal and joy to turn away from those patterns and lifestyles of selfishness and our joy of cultivating around us a spreading contagion of grace where repentance is normal, that repentance moves the heart of God. We think we impress God with our wins, our accomplishments, our relationships, even in our ministry. God is more impressed when we are honest about our losses. We think we move God when we reach the heights. Our successes are displays of strength. But God is most moved when we descend to the depths, when we repent of our sins. This stuff up here, I don't know about attaining that sometimes, not all the time, but going down here with honesty about my deep desperation for the grace of God and the great selfishness of my heart. I can do that. Anyone can do that. This is the story of the grace of God. You want to move the heart of God. You want to even impress the heart of God. You want to catch the eye of God. Come to him just as you are as a sinner saved by grace. That's good news. So will you go there? Will we go there together to grow in true repentance? Will you bring a repentant heart to God and then move the heart of God today. That's an invitation. Nineveh has been saved from destruction. They have turned from their ways and it's cause for every kind of celebration. Is God and his grace has showed up. The prophet has delivered the goods. Celebrate, right? Wrong. Not Jonah, not today. Which brings us to the second point. This passage is not only a story about a repentant city, it's also a story about an angry prophet. Jonah's mad. Jonah is mad at God. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. You know, that the two to three... Hebrew words that are translated here in the English very wrong, it actually carries the sense of grieving evil exceedingly to the point of trembling. It's, a, it's an intense little phrase there. That's what Jonah is feeling. And why? Why was Jonah this angry? Well, did you notice what he told God, how he explained it in verse 2 of chapter 4? Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is why I tried to forestall by fleeing 
from Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. In other words, Jonah never wanted God to show compassion to the Ninevites. Jonah wanted God to judge them. You ever feel like that? That's why Jonah ran away in the first place. It's why Jonah is mad now. You see, you may or may not know that Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria, a great and growing empire in that day. Jonah would have thought very lowly of the non-Jewish Ninevites. Just like his peers Scholars confirm that Jonah probably harbored a, a sort of religious and ethnic bigotry towards them. As Sinclair Ferguson comments, it is impossible to discount Jonah's ethnicity from his reaction. He was a nationalist of the most dangerous kind, one who believes not only in defending his own territory, and living for the benefit of his immediate kinsmen, but who, as a consequence, has a spirit of antagonism towards others and hopes that God shares his attitude. What Jonah wanted was a God made in his own narrow-hearted image, a God with his own prejudices who would only come into fellowship with sinners under certain restrictive conditions. Maybe more to the point... Israel was to Assyria, excuse me, was to Israel an enemy nation. In fact, as a prophet, Jonah most likely knew that in a few decades into the future, Assyria was going to conquer parts of Israel, capture 27,000 of its people, enslave them, and send them into exile far from home. No way. Jonah hated the Ninevites. His heart was just full of racism and resentment. And he was furious that God would show his enemies any ounce of grace and compassion. Jonah is mad. Jonah is just like I mean, this gets real personal real fast, doesn't it? I mean, friends, who has it been hardest for you to love lately? Who's been like an enemy to you? Maybe you think of them or maybe you hear about someone like them on the news and, and all this grieving evil exceedingly to the point of trembling begins to well up within you. Or maybe more specifically, who would you be most mad about God being kind and compassionate towards? You know, in your mind, because you feel like God is just letting them off the hook. Maybe like the Ninevites to Jonah, it's someone who's hurt you. Or whom you're afraid will hurt you. Or someone who has committed injustices against you or your people. Jonah was struggling while being sent on a mission to Nineveh, right? So let's apply this in terms of our city. Who 
in the neighborhood? Is it hard for you to serve or be friends? Because you quietly feel like they don't deserve your kindness. Maybe it's the wealthy. Maybe it's the poor that you feel don't deserve your kindness. Maybe it's your white neighbors. Maybe it's your black neighbors. Maybe it's Democrats. Maybe it's Republicans. Maybe it's Muslims. Maybe it's other Christians. You know, it, it's really easy to convince us, to convince ourselves that the real problem with the world is all of them out there, right? Whoever them is. And then it's even easier to assume that God agrees with your assessment. But we couldn't be more wrong. Jonah could not be more wrong. I mean, remember that dazzling quote by Anne Lamott. You can safely assume you've created God in your own image when it turns out that God hates all the same people that you do. God is not like us. Jonah's God is not like us. That's good news. A God of compassion, a God of grace, a God who surprises us with how he loves and whom he loves. Let me ask the question again. Who among our neighbors is it hard for you to serve or befriend because you secretly believe they don't deserve kindness, whether yours or God? You see what this story is all about. Jonah is mad because God is showing compassion to all the wrong people. Which is another way of saying that Jonah is mad. We are mad at grace. I think Christian author Preston Sprinkle puts it well in his wonderfully provocative book entitled Charis, which is the Greek word for grace, he writes this. From our vantage point, grace always gives to the wrong person. We see this over and over again in the Gospels. Jesus is always giving to the wrong people. Prostitutes, tax collectors, half-breeds. The most extravagant sinners of Jesus' day receive his most compassionate welcome. Grace is a divine vulgarity that stands cautioned on its head. Friends, what Jonah was mad at was grace itself, the, the shocking, unmerited, inexplicable mercy of God. Grace, the story of undeserved favor and kindness, the, the Hard to, impossible to wrap your mind around shocking love of God, which includes you and me. The love of God that found a way to forgive you and me. What Jonah was fighting against, what we fight against, is the scandalous compassion of God. Have you been scandalized? by the stunning compassion of God lately. Not just for those out there. Whew. But how about 
this one right here? Have you been scandalized by the stunning realization that God could love you, of all people? That when you're honest with yourself about all your sins and failures, the ugly selfishness of your heart, God could actually find a way, make a way to love you. In the final scene of the story in the second half of chapter 4, we see God once again working on Jonah's heart. God never gives up on Jonah, does he? Again and again and again, he's pressing in. And this time with another object lesson. Jonah goes and he sits down, lies down outside of the city. The sun is just blazing hot. Hard to imagine on a day like this, I know. Blazing hot, imagine it. But God makes a plant seemingly miraculously grow and provide Jonah with some shade over his head. And we're told in chapter 4, verse 6, that Jonah was very happy with this plant. Made him more comfortable. But then the next morning, God took away that plant by sending a worm to just chew it up. And then once again, it was just so hot, no more shade, that Jonah, again, became so angry. Now he says, I want to die. God speaks to him in verses 9 and 11, and this is what he says to Jonah. First, Jonah, you got to understand the plant was a gift. It was a gift. You did not tend it or make it grow, verse 10. But you're mad like you deserve it, like you're entitled to it. Hmm. Don't you know the story of grace, Jonah? Don't you know that the shade and shelter, not just here and now, but that I provide you from the scorching heat of my judgment, is an unearned gift of grace. It's compassion, not compensation. Jonah, don't you know my grace? And secondly, Jonah, you love this plant you even almost wept over this plant when you lost it. You love this plant more than you love people. Verse 10, it sprang up overnight and it died overnight, alive for only 24 hours, and you were more concerned about its destruction than about the destruction of thousands of people who will be alive for eternity. Verse 11, and should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh? in which there are more than 120,000 people who morally cannot tell their right hand from their left and also many animals. Jonah cared more about the plant than he did for people. He, like us, loved his comfort more than his neighbor. He, like us, loved his security more than his enemies. God is pulling together this one final lesson for Jonah and for us, and here's the bottom line. It's only when you've experienced personally the scandalous compassion of God that you have power to extend the scandalous compassion of God to others. But of course, the greatest expression of God's scandalous compassion was the cross of Christ when one who himself was called the greater Jonah, Jesus, 
suffered and died on the cross for all of our wickedness and violence and violent indifference. Jesus, who in our place took the blaze of God's judgment on the cross that we deserved, that we might be reconciled to God. That we who so often cry out, God, don't forgive them. We all know what they did. Jesus was the one who hung on the cross and cried out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus, who gives to you and me stunningly unearned, undeserved relentless love that chases after runaways like you and me, who pursues us to the end, who chases after Jonah even to the bitter end, to the very last word of this story, did you notice its strangeness? It kind of leaves you hanging. God poses a question, don't you know, Jonah, that I needed to have great concern for this city show them compassion and then what happened we don't know how did Jonah respond the story is left unfinished unfinished well sort of you get to finish it you get to finish it we get to provide the conclusion to this message this call Whom will you love now with a scandalous compassion? With a kind of favor and kindness that you know is undeserved, but about which your friends might even look upon and say, that's a little ill-advised. Maybe even a little dangerous to love like that. Behold the dangerous love of God that sent his own son to die upon the cross for you and me. Have you received the scandalous compassion of God in Christ? Then will you love with such a scandalous compassion today? So, dear friends, that's the question. How are you going to finish the story? Behold the scandalous love of Christ. Let's pray. We need your help to believe these things, to see our lives changed by these things, by you. Pierce our hearts. We need to be washed over again by your gospel love, your shocking love, your scandalous love. Do it again, even in the next minutes as we sing, as we pray, as we finish up our time together. Pierce our hearts, Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and let's sing.